Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. How's everybody doing? Good. Happy 4th of July weekend to everybody. Thank you for coming here and celebrating Jesus, but uh, being here on the holiday weekend, it's just so good to be here with you in person, online, if you're watching from your boat up north. Good for you. Appreciate you joining us that way or wherever you find yourself on this uh, Independence Day weekend. It's just good to be in the house of the Lord in, uh, in community like Phil echoed. Uh, I just want to say that again. It's just good to get together. You know, when Jesus intended for the church, he meant for it to be communal. He meant for this salvation thing that we walk through to be communal. We're supposed to kind of rub shoulders. We're supposed to sharpen one another. And so being able to do that uh, and kind of setting other things aside for a moment and just kind of leaning in on this for one, for just a period of time, leaning on this together, sharpen one, one another, encourage one another. It's just the greatest thing we could ever ask for. So thank you for being here. I just want to say happy 4th of July to everybody. Uh, I have to admit, uh, my birthday is close to 4th of July and for longer than I would care to admit, thought that fireworks were people celebrating my birthday. My whole childhood, my family would do my birthday and 4th of July at the same time. And so they would shoot off all these fireworks, we'd have all the neighbors over the house, and there would be this massive party. And I thought it was all for me. For, I, w I wish I could say I worked that out young. I want to say I was like well into grade school. Like full sentences, like very aware that 4th of July is a thing, but no, no, no. This party's for me. And uh, so I remember after the fireworks would go off, I'd go up to everybody and say, thank you for the fireworks. Thank you for the fireworks. Like, and uh, I just had to, my parents had to kind of burst that bubble and be like, well, you are important, but you know, we're free as a nation and we declared our independence and that's a big deal too. So uh, we're going to celebrate that, then we'll get to your birthday. So... It's just good to be here with you guys. Uh, my name is Pastor Tyler Green. I'm our next-gen pastor here at Community Christian Church. Myself, my wife, and my incredible team, we have the honor of serving our kids, youth, and young adult here at CCC. And it is truly one of the joys of my life to see what God is doing in young people, not just here, but globally. To be a part of this movement of God in the next generation is... Uh, it's just an incredible honor. And so to have your prayer, to have your support, the support of this church is um, something every next-gen pastor uh, longs for. So thank you for bringing that to us. Today I'm going to be continuing our series on the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're in the fifth installment and today I want us to zoom in on Ezra chapter 6 and kind of the back end of that chapter. And the topic I really want to lean in on is the idea of renewal. Can everybody say renewal? We all love this word because it means a fresh start, a redo. We kind of get a second crack at it. But today I want to look at God's perspective of renewal and specifically how he implemented renewal into an entire nation that was in desperate need of renewal. When I was thinking about renewal, it came to mind uh, I, my father-in-law. He renovated and uh, rebuilt a beautiful car. Uh, I'm not, I can't say I'm like a gearhead, so if I botch something, somebody can help me after and tell me where I got it wrong. But he essentially, he bought a 1970 Plymouth GTX. Anybody aware of what this car looks like? We have a screen, yeah, all right, cool. Has anybody driven one before? All right, cool, a few of you, sweet. 
So my father-in-law uh, in 1994 purchased this car. It had been on the West Coast for most of its life. Then a, uh, a buyer in Michigan got it, and then he was kind of ready to get rid of it. It was pretty beat up. The body was really tore up, and uh, a lot of the mechanics were failing. And so my father-in-law saw this as a passion project because that was the car when he was getting out of high school, early college, that was the car that he thought that's what cool guys drive. You know, you got summer, the windows are down, you got the music playing, and you're revving that engine of that 1970 Plymouth GTX. So he said, you know what, I'm going to get myself one, and I'm going to fix it up. So in 1994, he buys it. And not only did he restore it, he did it to exactly the way it would have been if it was fresh off the lot in 1970. Nothing was fake. He got every manufacturer, like, original part, restored it to its original color, and gave it all this love and attention. He did such a good job. He was featured in Motor Trend magazine. And this magazine, it was so funny because they kind of asked him some questions about it. And he said, when you bought it in 94, what did you tell your wife to, to let you buy it? He goes, oh, I just said it would take take no time, it'd be really cheap. Okay, so it sounds like some of you have done some renovation in your life. It is neither short or is it cheap. Uh, so one uh, Darlene's college fund later, they got the car put together. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. I'm teasing. After a, a little more time than he probably thought and a little more money than he probably thought, this car was up and running and that was a big part of Darlene's early childhood was going to uh, car shows and featuring this car. 1999, they roll it out onto the circuit, they're cruising Woodward, they're doing all these things and there was this pride in something that once was probably destined for the scrap heap is now being featured and is being uh, marveled at as this beautiful piece of engineering and machinery. And what's so cool is that there is something about that process that brings us a lot of joy because it didn't just happen overnight. There's something that it took time, effort, conscious investment. There was a decision that was made and the renewal of this vehicle, there, the pride of it wasn't just how nice it looked. It was what happened to it to get it to that point. There's a story to be told. My dad is a big car guy, and so when we would go to uh, uh, car shows and things like that, the first question he would say is like, when'd you get it? What'd you put into it? And he wants to hear the story. And the story is almost more impactful than the car itself. And so whether we think of uh, a car, in this case this beautiful uh, GTX, or it's a business, it's a marriage, it's a church, it's a life, renewal is an essential piece of the process in all of our lives. And it's taking something that maybe, depending, I don't know how you walked in, maybe you feel a little bit like the car that was broken down, dilapidated, destined for the scrap heap. And you're in need of a renewal touch that brings it back, restores it to God's intention for you. Maybe your marriage is on the brink and you are struggling and you walked in and you need that renewal touch from God. Maybe it's something else, whatever it may be that brought you into church or whatever you kind of have on your back right now. God is a God of renewal and we see it in scripture. And I want us to really ask the Holy Spirit today, corporately, online, here as we're studying this, that you would ask the Lord for divine revelation on this word renewal. Because I believe the weight of it, the roots of it go down so much deeper than just a second chance. It goes so much deeper because it's not just, like I said, in the car. It's not just what it looks like at the end. It's the lessons learned along the way. 
So this is going to take me to our main text, and I want us to zoom in on Ezra chapter 6, but a quick recap of what got us here so far. If we're looking at the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1 and 2 gives us a snapshot of God's divinely divinely initiating the process of liberating his people. Uh, At this point, Israel is enslaved to Babylon, and they are under an oppressive uh, government rule over them. And they are not the independent nation that God had called them to be. A holy nation set apart as it was originally designed to be back in the book of Exodus. Because of their wandering heart and because of their uh, introduction of idols and their developing of pagan religions around them and bringing that into their own culture, they drifted and they found themselves outside of the protection of God's hand. And so, uh, after a time of enslavement, Ezra 1 and 2, we start to see God is ready to bring them back. And by initiating the, the heart of kings and of prophets, we see God's plan in motion. And I love this because even before Israel knew what they needed or wanted, God was already at work. I think that's something we really need to remember. Then we get to Ezra 3, 4, and 5, and we start to see the beginning of this renewal of the temple, of the altar, and God starts divinely picking out people to be leaders in this renewal process, bringing them back to the land, getting the altars reestablished, getting the temple built. But as any work of God goes, it's met with a bit of resistance. Anybody ever faced a little bit of resistance trying to follow God? Am I alone on that? Okay, good. When you are walking in the purposes of God, the enemy would love nothing more than to get you off track. And this project in the book of Ezra is no different. God initiated it, God would protect it, but the enemy would do everything he could to derail it. And so whether it was defamation, it was misleading, it was threats, the enemy opposed the work of God. And though there were some delays and though there were some hiccups, God divinely, through the prophet's instruction, through our vigor and passion for the Lord, through God's intervention, we get to Ezra chapter 6, where the temple and the altar is being finished. God did it. He got them back to the place of renewal. And now, as we land the plane at Ezra chapter 6, 19 through 22, where I want to focus today, we see the celebration. And as any completion of a project, I'm sure my father-in-law, the first time that key turned over and everything was good and he got that last coat of polish on, the first thing he wants to do is show it off. But what I love is that in this moment, we see Israel, instead of just throwing a big old party, they will, what they do is they consecrate it and celebrate a time of Passover, a time of remembrance, remembering God's goodness that got them to that point. And it's that heart I want us to lean in on today, that though God takes us through the process, it's easy to then look at the completed uh, process and be like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm all right. But it's remembering what got you there that roots down the work of God deep in your spirit. So what I want to do is take this 10,000-foot view of this story and then lean in. And it's kind of in three steps. One, that God initiated the process— Number two, the people eventually chose to then obey. God prompted, but they could have kept saying no. But there was the faithful few that said yes. And it was those yeses that moved God's purposes along. It does take a yes from man in response to the prompt of God. 
And then the last thing, God reinforced. He covered it, he put his hand on it, and he led it to completion. So then for us, we need to look at that process for ourselves. What is God initiating in you? What do you need to say yes to? What do we need to say yes to? And then lean in with faith that God would reinforce and renew and strengthen and deepen within us. So why don't we look at today's main text, Ezra 6, 19 through 22, and let's see uh, this moment of Passover being celebrated at the new temple. So why don't you go ahead and turn your Bibles with me. It'll also be on the screen. Ezra 6, 19 through 22. It says, On the 14th day of the first month, this is the 14th of Nisan, the exiles celebrated the Passover. This moment in the, calendar, in the Jewish calendar was the traditional time to celebrate Passover. It was a divine orchestration of time to get them to this particular date in the calendar. And it's important because we're going to see this again later when we see Jesus come onto the scene at Passover in his time. The 14th of Nisan, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles and for all their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated the joy of the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. We see this establishment of the temple and there is this joy, there's this spiritual vibrancy, there's this exuberance that the temple is finally done. We are on our way back to the rich heritage that was Israel when God took us to the promised land generations before. We're back. And the most important thing they could have done at that moment was stop, slow down, stop working, and celebrate God's faithfulness. And that brings us to the understanding of Passover. Now, I'm sure many of you, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the story of Moses and the ten plagues and what happened to initiate the first Passover. But what we tend to miss is that this was not just a one-time occurrence and then a folklore tale to be told for generations. It was so important that God implemented it as a mandated part of the calendar. You have to remember this. You have to, you have to, you have to. Because without remembering we see drift is inevitable. So we get to Passover, and in this moment, we see uh, Israel celebrating a, a renewal from slavery, just like it happened in Moses' day. Let's go back a few hundred years. Moses is leading people out of Egypt, and there is oppression from the Egyptian pharaoh, and he says he will not let his people go. Even in the face of God and his miracles, Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, you cannot go. And God throws him plague after plague after plague. Through the boldness of Moses and Aaron, there is this fight in a sense. Really, we know it's not much of a fight. God always wins. God was just giving him a chance to back off. He chose not to. And when you, if you're trying to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, can I tell you, one side wins and it's not you. 
Pharaoh, unfortunately, learned that the hard way. And so we get to this 10th and final plague. And Egypt is just under siege from everything that has happened. But Pharaoh, in his hard heart, kept refusing. So God sends the angel, this angel of death, or this spirit of death that is going to pass over the land. And the plague is the first, the life of the firstborn child of every uh, animal and every family. The firstborn son. And in culture at that time, that was so important because the firstborn son was the carrier of your generational um, identity. They carried, they had that largest inheritance. They were essentially the one that would come up and take over the family business, the family role in society. It was a very important role. So God wasn't messing around when he said, I'm going to interrupt everything by this. But he provided a covering for his people. Anyone willing to be obedient to the word of God. And he says, if you will take a pure and spotless lamb, take it to the altar, slaughter it, take its blood, and paint its blood over your doorstep of your home, as the, uh, the spirit of death passes by, it will go past your home and move on to the next. That's where we get this word Passover. And so in this moment, we see that by the blood of the lamb, Death moves on. And we obviously see this as the prophetic imagery of who Jesus would eventually be generations and generations later, hundreds of years later. But in this imagery, we see that it is by God's grace he intervenes even when his hand of judgment is, enact, is enacted. God is so gracious, he's so faithful that he would not let his people fall victim to even the judgment he has to enact on Egypt. And it is by the blood of something pure and something unspotted, something clean. And so we get to the, cer the ceremony of Passover. And it's this symbol of salvation. It's so important because it preserves the identity. It preserves the remembrance of how we get here today as believers. And so Jews for generations, generations would remember the Passover year over year by celebrating a seven-day long meal, a festival. And there was multiple steps, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but what I love specifically is that they always brought it back to a lamb. They had this strong imagery of a lamb, and the lamb being broken and being, uh, this blood being spilled out on behalf of the people, an atonement of sorts. You see, the, the sins of man could never be undone by behavior. Even if Israel was perfect, they would always have just a little bit of sin. And that little bit of sin was enough to separate us from God. But God provided a way. In his grace and in his atonement, he made a way. But the blood of lambs we come to find is temporary. There would be nothing sufficient until we got to Jesus. God himself had to pour out of himself to be enough of a sacrifice. But in this moment of Passover, they remember that atoning work at the time of Egypt. And so in a way that feels so similar to coming out of Egypt, we get to coming out of Babylon. Enslaved, taken against your will, dragged into a society that was not one that God intended, and God, by his sovereign, powerful, leading hand, he leads them back to a place that they can call their own, where God can dwell at the center. That was the point of the temple. 
where his presence could be manifest and be there with them at the center. And when in doing that, God and his people could be together again. And they hadn't had that in so long. Daniel talks about it was 70 years that they would be enslaved. And at the end of that time, they're being taken out. And so we see this parallel to Egypt, freed from slavery and into freedom. And so they celebrate Passover. As a part of that too, we also see the festival of the unleavened bread. And there's a lot of interpretations for that, but one of them that comes out of it is that it represented the manna from heaven. That upon Israel's departure out of Egypt, they don't have any, they left with what was on their backs. They really didn't have much. They left in such haste. So God had to provide every step of the way, every meal, every drop of water was God provided. So this unleavened bread was a reminder of God's providence even in the wilderness. And then as uh, we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus equate the unleavened bread, even a slight amount of leaven, to be indicative of sin. And sin being that thing that could mar a whole loaf. So he says, I want you to eat unleavened bread to, see, to represent this holiness, this purity that he uh, makes us by his blood. So in this implementation of Passover, it was essential for the renewal of the spirit of the nation of Israel. But without Jesus, again, it was only for a season. It was temporary. It wasn't until we got to communion and we get to Jesus celebrating the Passover himself with his closest friends the week he would be betrayed and go to the cross. And we see Jesus in celebrating. He's having all of the traditional meals. And as he pours the wine, one of the four cups of wine that would be poured out for each person in remembrance of different elements of God's providence in Egypt, he passes out the wine and he says that this is my blood poured out for you. Every time you eat and drink, remember me. He implements this phrase, remember me. Jesus was putting a period on Passover and was starting a new sentence that was communion. The memorial of the final lamb that was ever going to be necessary and then in enacting communion, the thing that we would remember Jesus by for all time and what we will be doing today. We remember through the act of communion. Jesus was the final Passover and the first communion. And it's Jesus and, Jesus and Jesus alone that could have done that. So here we get to the celebration of the Passover in Ezra 6, 19-22. It signified the remembrance and celebration of yet another display of God's faithfulness and grace. Fresh mercies, as we remember fresh mercies we had had before, and fresh mercies before that, and fresh mercies before that. And so it's this renewal in our hearts that we have to remember, if God can renew Israel and pour out fresh mercy on them, though they had gotten it before, God was so faithful to give it again, how much more so, how much do we need that in the same kind of renewal in our own lives? Though our circumstances may not look the same as Ezra chapter 6, where you're com we're all coming out of slavery and we've all been oppressed by a pagan uh, military and all this stuff, it might not look exactly the same, but we can all relate to seasons of a deep need for spiritual renewal. I hope I'm not the only one in the room who has ever needed a refreshing touch from the Lord because you're feeling a bit dry. Yeah. 
And so we all can recall moments, seasons, maybe you find yourself in that today, that there is a need for God's fresh touch. And there is a process that God portrays in Ezra chapter 6 that we can then enact in our own lives that is a process that's helpful for this renewal touch from God. So I want to actually break it down into four parts of the process of renewal, or what I'll call the process of renewal, looking at Ezra chapter 6. The four parts are remember, examine, choose, receive. Remember, examine, choose, receive. And I'm going to go through these a little bit quickly, but just uh, keep up with me and we'll see where this goes. Remember, you have to choose to remember. That was the whole point of Passover. Ezra chapter, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12, 26 through 27. This is God in, uh, placing this commandment before Israel the very first time. And it says, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. Remembering is so important because it's not just for your own sake, it is for you and your home. Notice that when the initial Passover happened, it wasn't just put the blood on yourself. As long as I'm good, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't know about anybody else, as long as I'm good, it was for your household. God is a family-oriented God and he is mindful of your household. He's asking you to remember, will you plead the blood of Jesus over the doorframe of your house? The house of your heart, but then your home as in your family. Over your wife, over your children, over your husband, grandchildren, whatever your home looks like. Will you remember the work of Jesus in your life and recall it and then again daily paint that blood over the doorframe of your home? God is asking the children to, to remember and keep this remembrance going. There's a story in a book I read a while back. The book is called Unbroken. And the book tells the story of a guy named Louis Zamperini. Has anybody ever seen the movie or read the book? Okay, pretty, it was a pretty popular book. And in this story, Louis Zamperini, he's a World War II veteran and he is in a fight against Japan and he was in an airplane that crashed into the ocean. While he was floating in the ocean and he's in a life raft, he's getting cooked by the sun, sharks are circling, and he sees the end of his life imminent. It's right on top of him. And he, through chapped lips, says, God, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And through a series of fortuitous events, he is saved. Probably not in the way he meant for it to. You have to read the book and see the movie to, to see how that worked out. But a series of, though he was saved, technically, his life was not great for, a, for several years. But after the war, he survives, he gets home, but the demons, so to speak, the PTSD followed him home. And he was a raging alcoholic. He was abusive and just not a great guy in his marriage. He was a struggle to be around. And I think, just looking at his life, he'd probably forgotten about that conversation with the Lord back on the life raft. And there's this quote in the book. And it comes as he is at a tent meeting with a young Billy Graham. And it was him and his wife, they're on the brink of divorce. His life is falling apart. Alcoholism is taking over his body. And with one last ditch effort, 
He makes his way to this tent revival and just kind of throws out a, a lifeline, so to speak. In this quote, it's so powerful. It says, he was, he was a body on a raft dying of thirst. He felt words whisper from his swollen lips. It was a promise thrown at heaven, a promise he had not kept. If you save me, I will serve you forever. And then standing under this circus tent on a clear night in downtown Los Angeles, Louis felt the rain of God fall upon him. There was this recollection that Louis Zamperini had at the altar at that Billy Graham revival that brought him back to a moment of him and his maker, him and God. And he was reminded of a promise he made. God held up his end of the deal. Would he hold up his? It was this powerful reminder that God used to lead him to salvation. It showed him his faithfulness. Louis Zamperini had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the Lord, but he almost forgot. And it was remembrance that brought him back. You see, our spiritual vibrancy begins with our spiritual memory. Our spiritual vibrancy starts with the spiritual memory. You have to remember God's faithfulness. Even when life feels like it's right on top of you, you can't see the forest through the trees because this mountain, this thing is so big right in front of you. If you remember that how God got you through in the past, you can see how God will get you through again. Remembering is so essential. And we're going to see as we take communion that remembrance is a big part of why we still take communion. Jesus said it himself that when you do this, remember me. So as we remember, we then have to take the next step, and that is examine. We have to examine our heart. And I would call this getting honest with God. How many of you uh, have a boss at work? How many of you uh, are a little more mindful of your behavior when your boss walks in the room? Okay, so I'm not alone. All right. You want to be on your best behavior. Why? Because you want to display a version of you that is a good worker, that is efficient, gets the job done, and isn't slacking off or anything like that. You present your best self. But if you were to sit down in your review with your boss and you say, you know, I, I do play a game of solitaire or two on the computer. I do kind of scroll on my phone sometimes. You know, if you got really honest... You know, you would kind of take this guard down of this facade that we tend to put up to try and impress. Can I tell you, with God, he sees it all anyway, and there is no impressing him with our deeds. It is truly just our heart. We see in uh, this passage from Ezra, in verse 20, it says, the priests and Levites had purified themselves and were ceremonially clean. What did they do exactly? There was a, a list of religious things they had to do to purify themselves physically, but it was also an assessment of their hearts spiritually. Where were they at with God? 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. There is this freedom that comes by being totally transparent with God. God, I, I'm, I'm a mess. Do you see me yesterday? Do you see the way I talked to my wife? Do you see the way I talked to my kid? Do you see the... And we get honest with God. Because the more we think we can shove stuff in the closet, lock the door, and kind of keep it away, because I know everybody's got that room or that part of the basement where you just kind of throw it all in when company comes over. Okay, just me too. <laughs> we have that part of the house. You shove everything away, and you're like, look at how clean my house is. 
Well, just don't go in that room. Don't look under my son's bed. It's gross. That's where all of his laundry's at. Or, you know, we tend to do that in our spirit and God's like, no, no, no. I don't want you to have to have that door. Just open it up. Let's talk about it. Let's heal it. Let's work through it. Let's make you whole. Because any part not surrendered to God is just leaving you less than whole. And you will feel it. At 30 years old, I have not lived a long life, but I've lived enough to know that any part not given to God, you feel like you have square tires on a bike. It's clunky and messy. God wants it all. It's really a process of micro decisions and a small decisions along the way that lead us to this eroding of our soul. And it's take getting honest with God. I saw this illustration. I really liked it. It says, after a violent storm one night, a large tree, which over the years had become a stately giant, was found laying across a pathway in the park. Nothing, splintered, nothing but a splintered stump was left. Closer examination showed that it was rotten at the core because thousands of tiny insects had eaten away at its heart. The weakness of that tree was not brought on by the sudden storm. It was the moment that the first insect embedded itself in the bark. This examination with the Lord is not meant to just, you know, take you to the woodshed and God reprimand you for everything you do. It's to inspect and get the, the bugs out, the things that want to eat away at the core of you. The longer we try and do it ourselves, the more of those bugs, so to speak, to keep with this illustration, the more of those get into your soul and they chew and eat away until it takes one big gust of wind of life. Um, an act of the enemy to topple you over. How do we oppose that work of the enemy? We say, God, where are the bugs at? Let's just get really honest. God, where, where are the bugs at? What do I need to do? And let him assess it. And led by a loving God in the hand of the Holy Spirit, he wipes it clean, leads you to repentance, and he guides you to a place of wholeness. You see, no great work suddenly collapses, no marriage suddenly fails, no mental health suddenly crumbles, and no ministry suddenly collapses. It is a lack of an examination, assessing our heart before the Lord. So friends, let me encourage you today, get out ahead. Even if you feel good, it's good to have routine check-ins. Lord, every day, search me and know me. See every corner of my heart and lay it bare before the Lord because who better than the one who knit you together, the one who breathed life into your lungs, who better to assess the way to fix and heal your heart? It's good to let God examine it through his loving hand. So after we've remembered, we've examined, I want to get through these last two here pretty quick. We have to choose. We've had this time with the Lord. We remember his goodness. We've had this uh, time of remembering God's faithfulness in our lives. We have examined. We've laid ourselves bare before the Lord. But now you come to the fork in the road. What are you going to do with this? Are you going to take the road that goes right back to, those, to the life that you were living? There were plenty of the Israelites that chose to. When, Exodus, or when Ezra tells us uh, that they were celebrating the Passover, it was saying that not everybody came with them. Some people chose to go right back to Babylonian enslavement. God is saying, listen, I have been faithful. I will show myself faithful, show myself good every step of your life. 
I have been there with you every step of the way, and I will make you whole. Now I'm going to ask you to choose me. I'm going to ask you to respond. This is the beauty of the free will of God in our life. Love is best displayed when you get to say yes or no. Love forced upon you, if you have to say yes to God, that's not love at all. His love is so freely given, but it has to be received. It is a gift of God, the Bible tells us. And maybe like on Father's Day, you get that gift and it's a bow tie and you've gotten one every year for 20 years. You kind of want to return it. You receive it in love because you see the heart of your child that gave it to you. In the same way, God gives us salvation and he's asking, will you take it? It's better than a bow tie. Sorry, that was a bad example. (laughs) God is offering this, but there is a choice to be made to receive it. And that choice has a cost. I've heard it said that there is a cost for your yes and a cost for your no because whatever you choose, you're saying no to the other thing. And you have to let it go. You can't serve two masters. You can't say yes sometimes and no sometimes. You're just going to fall down and stuck in the middle. And that's no place to be with God. God is saying if you say yes, cut everything off and leave it behind you. If you're going to say no, then you're saying no. But he offers it as a choice and there's a cost to it. The Bible tells us, Jesus actually tells us about this. He says, count the cost. It's in Luke 14, 28. God wanted to set us apart. Exodus 19, 6 says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart for my purpose. You're not meant to look like the world. He's asking you to choose to be like him. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He has gifts for you and ready to give you upon your yes, upon your faithfulness to him. He wants to bestow to you crowns. He wants to love on you and lavishly bless you in some form or fashion. And it's up to God to decide what that looks like. But it requires your yes. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good. For the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Endure for the Lord. Choose and don't look back like the Israelites that as they wandered into the wilderness and they're eating manna and quail, seeing water spring from a rock, they would turn around, look back at Egypt and say, "Ah, but that's not so bad, right? They stopped and looked back at Egypt. God is saying, don't be weary in the choice you made of saying yes for him, even when it's hard. Because in that, we see the perseverance of our faith, James tells us. And that, that perseverance of our faith helps us to know. It roots the roots of the tree that is our soul down deep in his word. And when the storms come, we can't be shaken. It roots us down deep because of the perseverance of our faith. God wants to know you and be close to you, but you have to choose him. Lastly, at this point, this is the best part. We get to receive. We've remembered him. We've let him evaluate, examine our heart. We've then said, yes, we've chosen him. Now comes a time where we extend our arms out and say, Lord, what do you have for me? And it's in this passage in Exodus 19 through 22, 
verse 22, we see exactly what he pours out. It says, For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy. He had filled them with joy. Can I tell you, if you just look at the news for five minutes, there is anything but joy. If you look at the stock market, it's anything but joy. If you look at life, fill in the blank, it is hard to find joy because the world is in low supply. But the creator and the inventor of joy wants to pour it out on you. And that is the differentiator between God's holy nation set apart and everything else. It is the joy of the Lord. The Bible tells us that the joy of the Lord is our what? Strength. It is what helps us endure the hard times. When the world pushes back on you, you can stand firm because the joy of the Lord is my strength. We receive his joy as a result of this process of renewal. God planted rejoicing in their hearts and it yielded the most authentic worship Israel was capable. Communion. Passover, remembering. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Today, in just a moment, we're going to receive communion. Worship team, you guys can come on out. This moment with the Lord is to participate with him in his presence. Not worshiping him from afar, but right here with him. Joining him at the table. Psalms tells us that he prepares a table for us amidst our enemies. He wants to dine at the table with you. Will you pull up a chair today? Will you sit at his table and gaze upon him in his beauty and in his wholeness, in his power, in his faithfulness? And in response, would you worship him? That is the process of communion, this process of renewal. I love this verse, Proverbs 16, 7. It says, When people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. God is bringing a peace and a joy to the church that we need now more than ever. The world cannot provide it and there's nothing about any other source that will ever supply this peace and this joy and this wholeness that the kingdom provides, that God provides. And so what we need to do as a church is renew. Come back to the table with the Lord. We need to remember, examine, choose, and then receive that joy. The reality is we don't always see what God is doing. We struggle in the unknown and we struggle in the question marks. We struggle to trust God in the times where we are a bit out of control. But it's in those times that it's good for us to stop and to look for ways to see how God is working in it and how he has worked in it so far. Because when we do that, like this moment of Passover, that Israel was celebrating, we remember, God, if you can do it then, you'll do it for me today. Why don't we take up our emblems and I'm just going to pray. You know, the, these 
emblems of communion, the, the blood and the body. It's so important, these visuals, because the Bible tells us that it's by the stripes on his body that caused the bleeding, that caused the breaking of his body. It's by those exact things that what? We are healed. Isaiah 53, 1 Peter 2, 24. By those things we are healed. And healing, maybe it's physical for you today, but maybe it's relational. Maybe it's circumstantial. Maybe it's financial. Whatever it is, renewal goes down to the soul. And that's what I'm after today. That's what we're after today. That as we come to the Lord's table, we say, Lord, by the blood, by the body, by these things being shed for me, Lord, I receive your renewing touch, your healing touch. So why don't we just go before the Lord here? Just kind of get into a prayerful uh, posture. And just in your mind, as I read this scripture, would you just kind of go through that process, remembering the Lord? Do an examination of yourself, in your, of, of your spirit with him. Just kind of get into that mode. 1 Corinthians 11, 24 through 26, it says, When he had given thanks, he had broken the bread, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood that atoned and covered Israel at the first Passover and the blood of atonement for the sin of a nation time after time after time pale in comparison to the blood that it was spilled from Jesus' veins on that cross at Calvary. But it is the blood that was so sufficient Colossians says it is all sufficient. Nothing else is needed. And by that blood, we remember today that we are new creation in Christ. The old is gone. Praise God. The new has come. We are no longer slaves to that old nature. Like Israel coming out of Egypt, coming out of Babylon, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are made bondservants with Christ. We attach ourselves to him. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because he's coming again. He's coming for a bride dressed in white, made holy only by his blood. And when he does, we will meet him again at this table and celebrate, as he says, we will have this meal together again. But it'll be in fullness of glory, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're going to sing, we will have that together. So I'm going to pray and then we'll, uh, you can take the emblems. Lord, we just thank you for your spirit. We thank you that your presence is here with us. Lord, today, would you take us through this process of renewal? Would you help us to remember your faithfulness in our lives? 
Would you examine every corner of our soul and would you renew it by your healing hand? Lord, would you help us to choose you every step of the way? Lord, today, Community Christian Church and every soul that makes it up, Lord, we choose you today. Even if we neglected to choose you yesterday, we choose you today, Lord. And Lord, today, may we receive your fullness of joy, your fullness of peace, and the wholeness that only you can provide. We love you, Lord. Why don't you go ahead and take the bread and the cup together. And then let's prepare our hearts to worship and give, give thanks and gratitude unto God as we conclude our service today.